Well, good morning. Hey, my name is John, and I'm one of your pastors here. And it is great to be with you all this morning as we continue to get to dive into God's Word. And we're continuing our series called We Want a King this morning. And before we dive in, I do want to give you all a disclaimer um, that our sermon this morning is not rated PG um, because the passage this morning is not rated PG. And so um, we're diving into some deep waters this morning. If you've got kids and you want to guard their ears, I'm giving you the heads up now. Um, I'm telling you so that you can't uh, get angry with me afterwards, okay? <clears throat> well, a while ago, Marika and I, my wife, um, we took our boys to the zoo. And we love going to the zoo. We've got a zoo membership. And we were walking through the zoo. And we were approaching the tortoises. And we began to hear some really strange noises. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so we continued to walk. And then we got to the tortoises. And we saw exactly what was causing this noise. One tortoise had mounted the other tortoise and was having sex with it. And we were like, whoa. This is crazy. We've never seen this before, and we've never heard it. And if you've never heard tortoises making love, it's very loud. It's very loud. And we have a pet tortoise. And our boys love our tortoise. They named him Torty. And our boys are watching this, and they're thinking, we've never seen Torty behave like this before. We have a celibate tortoise in our home. And so then they ask, Marike and I, what are these turtles doing? And we're like, oh, they're just wrestling. They're having fun. They're having a lot of fun. <laughs> it's awkward, right, to talk to our kids about tortoises making love. And so we didn't think that it was that important. We didn't even tell them about it. But three weeks ago, my oldest son, Wyatt, he's nine years old. We were reading through the Gospel of Mark together. I've been teaching him how to read the Bible on his own, and we came to Mark chapter 7, where Jesus talks about sin. And Jesus says specifically sexual immorality. And we're doing our typical Bible time, and we come to this, and why it's like, hey, Dad, what's sexual immorality? I'm like, whoo, here we go. We're going into the deep end of the pool tonight. This ain't going to be our typical 20-minute Bible time together but I knew it was important. I knew we needed to talk to him and have the conversation because it's pervasive in our world. He will be exposed to it. And so that night, we had to sit down and have a family talk about sexual sin. Well, this morning, we need to have a family talk about sexual sin within our church. If I'm honest, as one of your pastors, over the last year, there has been one thing that has weighed so heavy on my heart, and it's seeing the devastation of sexual sin, how it plays out in people's lives, the severity of it. And honestly, it breaks my heart. And this is the thing, no one is beyond temptation. None of us in this room are beyond temptation. And if there ever was a person that would be beyond temptation, it was King David. 
King David, the man after God's own heart. He's at the epitome of grandeur, the high point of his kingship in Israel. And sexual sin is the sin that takes him down. It begins unraveling him in the process of trying to cover up his sin. So as we come to our passage in Scripture this morning, it is a warning about the danger and destruction of sexual sin. Open your Bibles, pull out your app, 2 Samuel chapter 11, pick up with me in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch, he was walking on the roof of the king's house. It's then that he saw from the, from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. And then afterwards she returned to her house. The woman conceived. She sent and told David, I am pregnant. First thing we see is that this is the crime. The crime. There is a severity to the crime of sexual sin. All sexual sin breaks God's law. Some of it breaks American law. And all of it ravages and hurts other people and damages your relationship with God. And there is a severity to the crime of David's sexual sin here. And we're told... It's springtime. This is when all the kings go out to battle. But David doesn't go. He intentionally stays behind from battle. And by doing this, he's neglecting his kingly duty. He isn't doing the thing he's supposed to be doing, which is interesting because back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the very reason why Israel wanted a king to begin with was they said, hey, we want a king who is going to go out and fight our battles for us. And now David has neglected to do this very thing. He's not doing it. Instead, we're told he's chilling at home. And this dude ain't working remote. This is before COVID. Nobody worked remote before COVID. And we're told right here in the passage that he's on the couch. He's on the couch. He's streaming shows, scrolling through his phone, and one thing leads to another because oftentimes sexual sin starts with neglecting the good things that you should be doing. And so what does he do? He gets off the couch, he goes outside, he walks out on the roof, and he's looking around the city, and then he sees this woman. We're told that she's very beautiful. Beautiful. This word in the original Hebrew, it means good and pleasing to the eye. David saw her, she was good and pleasing to the eye. This is just like Eve back in the garden. The Garden of Eden, Eve saw that the fruit was good and pleasing to the eye. And so what did Eve do? She took the fruit. This is the key that unlocks that this is a fall story. 
because David saw Bathsheba, good, pleasing to the eye, and now he takes her. It's as if he's on Amazon. Amazon allows you to be passive at home, but incredibly powerful at the same time because they created the buy with one click button. And so whatever you want in the world, you can buy with one click from the comfort of your couch. David objectifies Bathsheba with one click. But how should he have been viewing her when he saw her? As a sister within the covenant, someone that he, as king, had a role in protecting, especially when she's vulnerable as her husband is out fighting. Not see her as an object for his own pleasure. But David is king. He can have whatever he wants, right? He has the power and he wants her. And so we're told he takes her. The word sent appears 10 times throughout chapter 11. The writer is intentionally drawing our intention to something with the word sent. The writer is showing us that David exercised his power by sending, but David abuses his power. And we are clearly told that he knows exactly who she is and whose she is. Who she is, she's the daughter of a lion. Who she is, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This is what we're told, but David doesn't care. It doesn't stop him because he continues to act on the very thing that he wants. This is not a mutual affair. This is not a mutual affair. There are clear power dynamics at play here. When the Me Too movement broke out, one of the things that it exposed were power dynamics. The things were not consensual. Like Harvey Weinstein, when actresses' jobs were on the line, it was not mutual. But the writer also wants to see, see something else very important here about Bathsheba, that she becomes the object of verbs. And she gets wounded by the verbs. Because we're told here that David saw her, sent, inquired, took, and lay with her. Things happened to Bathsheba. Things were done to Bathsheba. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, well, hey, I'm not a king. I don't have the kind of power that David had. You're right. You don't. You have far more power than David ever had because of your phone. Where someone who has been sex trafficked around the world comes to you on a screen and you can treat that person like an object of verbs for your own pleasure. And tragically, some of you sitting in this room this morning have been the object of verbs like Bathsheba. Things have been done to you. You've been the victim of someone else's sexual sin and you know the severity of the crime. 
You've experienced the pain. You need to know this morning that it's not your fault. God is opposed to it. It is utterly evil. God hates it. It's a crime against you and it's a crime against God. But even more tragically, for some of you, power dynamics were involved with your uncle, your boss, your babysitter. You may be sitting here this morning wrestling with feelings of shame, thinking somehow that you had something to do with it, that it was your fault. But hear me, it's not your fault. And what the Bible tells us, what Scripture tells us here, is that it is not Bathsheba's fault either. It is David's fault. And so if this is a part of your story, please hear me. We are here for you as a church family to care for you, to protect you, to walk with you. And if this is happening in your life right now, if you want help, we are here for you as church leaders. We have official partnerships with licensed counselors and partnerships with other local resources. We're here for you. What does David do now after he sins? Verse six. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, how the war was going. Then David said, hey, Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. That is a euphemism for have sex with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house And there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord, and he did not go down to his house. Next thing we see is that this is the cover-up. And if you try to cover up your sexual sin, the devastation only grows. So David finds out she's pregnant, and he starts freaking out. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I had sex with another man's wife, and now she's pregnant. What am I going to do? And he's pacing, and he's worried. He's freaking out, and then boom, light bulb moment. Uriah. Oh, he's up fighting. Maybe I can use my power again, exercise my power to send for him. And we see the word send show up here again. And so that's what David does. He sends for Uriah and he's like, all right, I got the perfect cover-up plan. Hey, Uriah, come home. You've been fighting hard. Go have sex with your wife. What dude's not gonna wanna do that, right? Here you go, man. Here's here's the king's gift to you. Go sleep with your wife. This is the perfect cover-up. They have sex. She's pregnant. Ah, it's not my child. Nope. Uriah doesn't do it. We're told that he sleeps at the king's door with all the other servants. He doesn't go to his house. Because of his honor and integrity. And so David's got to come up with another plan. He's like, what can I do? This guy's not having sex with his wife. What can I do? Verse 13, this is what we're told David does. So David, now he invites him over to his house. He invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. So David's like, you know what? When the dude's sober, he's not sleeping with her. I'm going to get him drunk. Surely then he's going to have sex with his wife. Perfect cover up. Nope, Uriah doesn't do it again. David was hoping that Uriah would act like he acted, but he doesn't. 
And there is a significant contrast of integrity in this passage that we're supposed to see. Uriah is a Hittite. A Hittite means he's a Gentile. If you don't know what a Gentile is, it's a fancy biblical word for saying anyone who's not ethnically Jewish. And so Uriah is not ethnically Jewish. It means he's not a child of the Torah. And now a drunk Gentile acts with more integrity than God's anointed king over his people, Israel. Because Uriah won't sleep with his own wife during battle because his men are out fighting, but David sleeps with the wife of another man who's out risking his life for David in battle. And so David's cover-up fails. He's like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He's even drunk and he won't do it. So David comes up with another strategy. I just need to get rid of this dude. Take him out. I'm going to have him killed on the battlefield. This is perfect. The blood won't be on my hands. War took his life, not me. This is the perfect cover-up. And this is exactly what David does, and he does it in a very heartless way. He writes a letter. It's a death warrant for Uriah. And he gives it to Uriah. He says, hey, go carry this back to the battlefield. Uriah has no idea that it's his death warrant. But in the letter, David says, hey, put this dude on the front lines. We're fighting is the worst so that he's taken out. The cover-up. And what we're told in verse 24 is that messengers send back word to David. And this is what they say. Then the archers shot your servants from the wall, David. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David puts him on the front lines and murders him. The cover-up. By trying to cover up his sin, what was sexual sin has now turned into murder also, which shows the extremes that you'll go to in order to never get caught. Rabbi Zacharias. Some of you may know that name. Others of you may not. He was involved in international ministry. He was a prominent Christian figure. He was an apologist, an evangelist, and he had an international ministry called Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, authored more than 25 books. He was a well-known figure for many decades, but he was also a serial sexual abuser who went to great lengths to cover up the international abuse that he had committed. And the devastation grew and it grew. And it only came to light, it all came to light in 2020 after he passed away. And the details are horrific. But he went to an extensive plan to cover up his sexual sin. And here's just a few of the things that he did. He had multiple phones at any given time, different phones. Each phone was on a different wireless plan. He never used Wi-Fi at work. He was constantly deleting messages. He claimed that he had chronic back injuries in order to receive uh, frequent massages, which was the arena, which was the arena where the abuse took place. He had non-disclosure agreements. He used ministry money to pay women after they were abused to keep them quiet. When women did speak out, he filed lawsuits and he spent more than $1 million of ministry money to fight against the women's allegations. The cover-up. His cover-up led 
to the devastation of many, many more victims. If you try to cover up your sexual sin, the devastation grows, just like David, just like Ravi Zacharias, because sexual sin never stops there. It grows. There is a destructive power to it, and it gets dark very, very quickly, and you will find yourself doing crazy things not to get caught. But I wonder, what are you willing to do to cover up your sexual sin? How far are you willing to go? Maybe it's constantly deleting your browser, having secret accounts, changing the names in your phone, getting a hotel room instead of actually going to the work meeting. If you're dating, it's your boyfriend and girlfriend, you're going as far as you possibly can go sexually, as long as you don't have intercourse, that way you can say, hey, we're not having sex or it's your OnlyFans account, and covering up not only your use of it, but also how you pay for it. Or maybe just constantly lying to the people who actually trust you most. David was willing to kill Uriah, murder him. And some of you are wounding others because of sexual sin. And maybe it's when you're dating. You're pressuring the, the other person to have sex with you. And you're pressuring them, and when they say no, you just ghost them. Or maybe it's your spouse. That you're treating your spouse like an object for your own use. Treating your spouse like a porn star in the bedroom. And it's wounding them. As the devastation of David's cover-up grows, is he going to get away with it? Will he get away with it? Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. One was rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. It grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David hears it, and then his anger is greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Next thing we see is the confrontation. Have the courage to confront sexual sin. Nathan had the courage to confront sexual sin. The Lord saw what David had done. And now the Lord sent Nathan. This is the ultimate power play. If you remember in chapter 11, 
We see that word sent 10 times, but now in chapter 12, verse 1, we're told that the Lord sends. Because God is more powerful than David. And so the Lord does something. David thought that he could exercise his sending power and abuse his power to sin and then cover it up and hide the truth. But hear me, this is massively important that we all understand about God and his character. God is absolutely not okay with what David did. He's absolutely not okay with what David did. And so he does something. He sends Nathan, and Nathan comes to David now to confront him with the truth about his sexual sin, the truth about what he has done, but then also Nathan's going to tell David the consequences now that he's going to face. But this took incredible courage for Nathan to do. David's the king. For one, you don't confront the king, and number two, David just had another man murdered. Nathan's putting his life on the line before David to confront him. But he does, and he uses this parable of the rich man and the poor man with this baby lamb. And in verse 4, Nathan intentionally uses a word in this parable so that he would indict David. He says in verse 4, but he took the poor man's lamb. Took. It indicts David because this is exactly what he did to Bathsheba. He took her. And so David responds, and he's furious. And he says, this man deserves to die. And Nathan responds in verse 7, and he says to David, David, you are the man. You are this man. This is what you have done, David. And because of it, there's going to be consequences. He tells him, hey, David, your child, your child's going to die. Tells him, hey, there's going to be civil war in your kingdom and in your family. And David, your wives are going to be taken from you. You did it privately, but it's going to be done to you publicly. David's sin will have consequences because sin always has consequences. But it does not mean that God has abandoned him. But Nathan needed courage to say this to David. And if I'm, if I'm honest, in the last year, I have needed courage. It's been really difficult because even when you have to lovingly and graciously address sexual sin in someone's life, it's awkward and it can be really painful. And it takes courage. And if I'm honest before you guys, there's been times that I haven't had the courage. Nathan had courage, even though he could have been killed. And I know that one of the reasons why I need courage is because I can be cut out of someone's life. And that's painful. We're all scared of that. and And it's scary and it's painful. But church, I want to encourage you this morning to have the courage to confront sexual sin in the lives of those around you, the people who you are closest to. And I get it, it can be hard to have courage, but if you don't confront sexual sin, it will grow and it could lead to more devastation. It can lead to someone's marriage being destroyed, their family being blown up. 
significant mental health issues, self-harm, generational trauma when kids are involved in this. Someone's career could be put on the line, financial devastation, irreparable damage. It is loving when you bring what's been hiding in the dark into the light. And hear me, there's a way to go about doing this. What I'm not saying is, hey, we need to go around and be the sin police and start beating everybody up and looking for sexual sin and everybody. I'm not saying that at all. There's a posture of grace. Doing it with people that you're in community with, that you're close with, that you know their lives. And it's out of love to be able to say, hey, I want to bring this to your attention. Hey, I think we need to address this because it will only grow and fester and it leads to devastation. And it's loving. Another reason why it's loving is because shame is attached to sexual sin. And the shame cycle leads to a downward trajectory. And it is the grace of God at work when you receive confrontation to reveal your sin. It's the grace of God in David's life right here at work. And it's the grace of God in your life when you receive confrontation to reveal your sin because it gives you the opportunity to turn from its destructive power. Gives you the opportunity to receive God's grace, to receive help and ultimately to experience healing. This makes us ask the question, is there hope for David? Does he ever recover from this? Chapter 12, verse 13. At the end of their confrontation, this is what David says to Nathan. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The last thing we see is the confession. When you confess your sin to the Lord, he is merciful and forgives you. And so David responds to this confrontation with confession. And he confesses his sin. But what if? You could read David's journal from this time in his life. Because we have it. He writes Psalm 51 after this happens. And this is David's confession. He says, have mercy on me, God. Oh, God, have mercy on me because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion and it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. This is the scandalous nature of God's mercy. This is the scandalous nature of God's mercy. He forgives David. We're told Nathan tells him the Lord has 
put your sin away forever. David's sin is put away forever. He can live and not die. He receives mercy, but it's not because he deserved it. David doesn't deserve mercy, but God gives him mercy because it's who God is. God is merciful. And it's because of that that we're doing this sexual wholeness conference. All 10 redemption congregations have said, hey, this is massively important, and it's significant enough that we want to put on this this, uh, conference. And the reason why is because there is hope in the gospel, because of the transformative power of Jesus. And this conference is for everyone. Literally, if you are in town, you should be at this conference. If you're out of town, you get a pass. But if you're in town, everyone should be at this conference. It's not just a conference for people who are struggling with sexual addiction or active in sexual sin. This is for everyone because, once again, no one is beyond temptation. No one is above this. This issue touches every single one of our lives in this room. And we can't lie about it. And the reality is, everybody has a story You have a story, other people have a story, and this is going to help you understand your story, sexual brokenness, but also sexual wholeness. But what I know is that some of you are here today and you feel trapped. You feel enslaved to sexual sin. And if you're honest, you've been sitting here through this sermon and you feel utterly hopeless. Because of the shame and the despair, you may even feel like a shell of a person sitting in this room because you absolutely are drowning in hopelessness. But what you need to know is that there is hope for you. There is hope for you because the sin in your life, this thing that you don't want to do, that maybe even you hate yourself for continuing to do, You need to know that it does not have the last word in your life and it does not have the last word in your story. But as soon as we talk about this this topic and this conversation, we have entered into enemy territory. This is the enemy's territory and here is what the enemy wants you to believe. The enemy wants you to believe the lie that you are trapped. The enemy wants you to believe the lie that this is how your life is always going to be so that you will just roll over in the grave and accept and give up because the enemy's trying to destroy you, trying to destroy your life, destroy your faith, destroy your family. He wants to destroy everything good that God has for you. That's why he is the enemy and this is enemy territory. But you are not enslaved to sin. It does not have the last word in your life because Jesus has the last word in your life. He speaks a better word and he writes a better story. And because of Jesus, there is hope for you. If you're hopeless this morning, there is hope for you because of Jesus. Healing is possible. Transformation is possible because of the power of Jesus. He's already dealt with sin. He has defeated it. And if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, that means that the same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. There is power over sin. You are not trapped in it. It is a lie if you believe that. There's power. The spirit of God lives in you and you don't have to roll over and give up. The other thing I know is that some of you are here this morning 
and you're wounded like Bathsheba. You have deep wounds from the things that have been done to you, the things that have happened to you. Jesus sees you. He hears you. He cares deeply for you and has compassion for you. And his name is Emmanuel, which means God with. He is with you in your pain. And Jesus wants to minister to you this morning. He wants to wash your wounds, to bandage them, so that you may experience healing. But others of you this morning, some of you are here and you need courage like Nathan. You need courage to be able to confront sexual sin as a means of loving people well and preventing the devastation from growing. And what we're told in our last verse of this passage, verse 14, we're told that the cost of David's sin, the consequence for his sin, is the death of his son. The son of David had to die. And there is another son of David who would be born many years later, and his name is Jesus. And the invitation this morning is to come to him. Jesus is the son of David who willingly died on the cross to take the consequences of your sexual sin, to bear all of the shame of it, and to reconcile you to God. And as you come to the communion table this morning, you come to Jesus, the one who atoned for your sin and washes you with his blood the one who was with you in your suffering, the one who had the courage to confront sexual sin and murder and deal with it down to its root. And so as we take of the elements this morning, the bread represents his body that was freely given for us. The wine or the juice represent his blood that was shed for us. And before we move into our time of communion, some of you may have realized that we didn't do our time of confession on the front end of our liturgy this morning like we usually do because we've moved it to right now. And it's only fitting if we follow in David's response to his sin by confessing it to God. It's only fitting that we do this. And so we're gonna enter into a time of confession right now. And what I want to encourage you guys to do, it may be bold, it may be really uncomfortable, but this whole conversation and topic is uncomfortable. Is some of you are drowning today. You've been covering up sin. It's eating away at your life. I wanna invite you to bring it out of the dark into the light, to bring it to Jesus, knowing that he's already dealt with it and there is mercy for you and there is hope. For some of you, you're wounded and you're suffering. I wanna invite you to sit with Jesus. We're actually gonna have a, a beefed up prayer team this morning, a bunch of the pastors, as well as other ministry leaders, women and men, that are gonna be available to pray with you, given the unique nature and weight of this topic. And so we wanna pray with you and pray for you. 
For some of you, you need courage this morning. What I wanna invite you to do is to ask God to give you courage to, to come and receive prayer. I'm gonna ask that you guys sit in confession before you come to the table this morning for communion. And because we have the prayer team, what I wanna invite you guys to do is come and receive prayer. You can confess your sin to God, knowing that he's dealt with it, but there is also power in confessing it and bringing it out of the dark into the light. There's power in receiving prayer and being prayed over and ministered to. And so here's the thing. I said this was enemy territory. The thing that the enemy doesn't want you to do is confess your sin. The enemy doesn't want you to come and receive prayer. Once again, this is his territory and he wants you to feel like you're enslaved, but you're not. And so I wanna invite you this morning to respond Confess your sin to Jesus, knowing that he is gracious and merciful, that he has dealt with it on the cross and there is freedom in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we all need you. And it's a topic like this, Lord, that it hits every one of us. We feel the weight of it. You feel the weight of it in the room because it's so weighty in everyone's stories. There's not a single person that's not affected by this. And so, Lord, it's passages like this that make us even that much more cognizant of our need for you, Jesus. And we thank you first and foremost that we can confess our sin to you. We thank you that you are a God who is merciful even though we don't deserve it. You lavish it upon us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be convicting and confronting sin Lord, things that need to be uprooted, things that are destroying people's lives and their families, Lord, that are wreaking havoc. Jesus, that you would confront it and convict people. Lord, that you would draw them to confession. Jesus, for those who are suffering like Bathsheba, that you would be their comforter this morning, that you would be with them, that they would sense your presence. Lord, for all of us, we need courage. You would give us courage, Jesus that out of love for others, that we can confront sexual sin before the house burns down, or before it's too late, before there's devastation. Lord, you've called us to love one another and that's what we wanna do. And so Jesus, we need you. I pray, Lord, that this, that this time would be rich. Jesus, that we would worship you in this time as well because you are worthy of our praise. So Lord, we give you our lives wholly devoted to you, amen.